Um, 15th, Proverbs 15, 33 is a verse I picked for you. Respect for the Lord will teach you wisdom. If you want to be honored, you must be humble. Okay, so that's the New Century version. It's kind of fun to read in other versions. We're in the middle of this series about the life of the Apostle Paul, and uh, the kind of the overarching thoughts here are, are getting things correctly sized. Because if you make a big deal out of something that's tiny, then you're out of proportions and it'll lead you off track. If you don't give the emphasis to something that's really, really important, then that can get you into trouble too. And, and Paul had a tendency to do that in some pretty major ways. And so we want to get, um, get the size right. And, um, because simply put, God is bigger than our problem. Whatever your problem, whatever you face, he is bigger than that. And I've heard preachers saying that. Paul teaches us that really well. Um, The first two weeks, we talked about the fact that God is bigger than religion. Paul was the most religious person you can probably ever come up with as an example. And he had it all wrong. Completely, completely wrong. And, um, And last week, we talked about the fact that God is bigger than my sin. He's bigger than your sin, too. I want you to know that. Not just my sin, but your sin, all of our sin. He's bigger than our sin. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> okay, all right, thank you, fine. I'll be in town all week, whatever, whatever. So, um, okay, so the, t- today we're going to talk about the fact that God is bigger than our blindness. It's an interesting term. Why you might say, well, Terry, blindness, why have you focused on that? I want to talk for you, a minute, uh, for you for a couple of minutes about spiritual blindness. What is spiritual blindness? You know, it's, and, and that's really what is going on with the Apostle Paul while he's still Saul. You get that, right? That he's spiritually blind and he's doing all these things we've talked about. You know, and you, you say, well, why is he acting like this? Why is he doing these things? Why is he chasing these people down? This will help you answer that question because he's blind. He's blind. Imagine just for a minute, let's just kind of go through this thought exercise that you are actually blind. Close your eyes, you can't see. You, you, you have to make your way through life with your other senses, but when um, you go down the road and there's a sign or you see an event or a beautiful mountain or a person, you can't know what it looks like because you physically, you cannot see. You're blind. It's not that you don't see. It's not that you won't see. It's that you can't. You don't have the ability to see. And, um, you know... Imagine that for a minute. So um, that's his deal. It's not that he won't see. It's not that he can't see. And you maybe have some people in your life and you think, you know, if you just, why don't you get it? You just don't get this. It's not that they don't get it. It's not that they won't get it. They can't get it. That's the concept that we're going to kind of chase down. I'm going to try and help you understand this. And I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to make an example. I was thinking about how do I um, show you something about human nature and, um, so I'm going to talk, I'm going to try and make this point um, tenderly in the next couple of minutes because I want to talk about a word that um, previously in our culture was a fairly innocent word. It was a completely innocent word and now has become very repugnant. Okay, I, wouldn't, I don't use this word in my everyday language, but I'm going to tell you what the word is so you're not guessing. Okay, um, And the word is retard. Okay, and I want to talk about the, the, that, the history of that word and, and, and uh, give you um, a little background on it. You know, because and the, the reason I'm doing this, I think there's something in our nature we have to fight down. Okay, so just so we're on the same page, I've told you the word. Here's the history. Here's the history of that word. Back in the um, probably 1500s, 
doctors would describe someone who today we would call intellectually disabled. Okay, that's the politically acceptable, the more sensitive terminology um, that's used today. But in the 1500s, they would use the phrase feeble-minded. Feeble-minded, okay? So it was, it was not meant to be evil. It wasn't meant to be denigrating, but um, it basically was uh, a word to describe somebody who had enough of an intellectual disability that they required some care. They couldn't live life completely on their own. They had to have some help and some attention. And over time... It became a pejorative. You would call somebody that, it was an insult. And like our culture has done, then it will come up with another way to describe it that's more sensitive and acceptable. And so, long about um, the middle 1800s, the word came into terminology was simple-minded. Simple-minded, okay? At the time, it was feeble-minded was an insult, so, okay, we'll use the phrase simple-minded. It was described to... Describe somebody with a mild intellectual disability. Well, after a while, that also became unacceptable. And long about the 1890s or so, well, actually, 1890s, um, the the word um, retarded started to be used, and that was basically taken from a Latin word, which basically meant to slow down. Very innocent enough. It was just meant to describe, and um, it was just a, a. It was used in the medical medical field. And around 1910, um, uh, another word started coming into use, along with a couple of other words, and that's the word moron. And if you study the word moron, there is an etymology there that basically says that some psychologists wanted to be sensitive, and they combined the word. There's two different sources that will, two different pathways people will tell you. One was a combination of the word sophomore and oxymoron, and another one was it was it was from a Latin word, um, both of which meant um, slow. And um, so over time, the, um, the words kind of got more and more scientific. And in fact, in the 1900s, early 1900s, you might have heard three terms. Three t- terms used by the medical field. Uh, and those terms are idiot, imbecile, and moron. And each of those represented someone who was intellectually disabled, but their intellectual development arrested at a certain age. So if a person whose, whose intellectual development stopped at about or less than age three, they were considered an idiot. I just feel terrible talking about it like this, because these are all pejoratives. So, and if, if their intellectual development stopped before age seven or eight, they were considered an imbecile. If it stopped before age 12, they were considered a moron. Now, I learned those three words, not from my family, but I learned them growing up. You know where I learned those three words? Watching the Three Stooges. <laughs> Really? That's where most of you learned that word, those words too. And I had no idea as a little guy growing up that what they meant. I just knew those were an insult you said to somebody and then you laughed at them. Because it, Mo, you know... Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nobody here watches Three Stooges, but I mean, I mean... I mean, I grew up thinking they were just funny things to call people. Had no idea that they had any, any um, relationship to anybody's disability. And so I probably never even understood the word retarded or retard until sometime in the 60s. And by that point, it was being used both as a medical description and as an insult. Um, I was in a psychology class in high school, and the teacher picked me to go on a field trip. There were two, only two of us got to go, and we went to uh, the state school um, at... Um, 
it was in Buckley, and I can't remember what the name of the school was, but um, I think the word re- retarded was part of the name of the school. I can't, can't really recall. And I went through several um, parts of that, of that facility, and they had different areas where you had the most severely impacted to the least severely impacted. And I'm telling you what, that visit had an impact on me. Because of my immaturity, I'd use that word as a playground insult just like so many of you people. Don't, don't, don't look at me like, oh, you Terry, you bad person. I mean, it, was, it, it changed my viewpoint. Didn't make me a whole lot more mature. I'm still immature today. You can tell that by, you know, you see me up here. But here's the deal. Our culture has this history of, 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 of coming up with a name or, or, or a way to describe something, and it's completely innocent. But pretty soon it turns into a slam. So we come up with another way, and then it becomes a slam. And we keep working our way. It's just our nature. What's wrong with us? What what is it about us that wants to insult people for something they had nothing, no responsibility for? You know, we still toss these words around. I watched a lot of political conversations in the last year, and I used a lot of those words in my mind. That's terrible. And the thing is that the loving thing to do is to not judge people for something that's outside of their choices, that's not their fault. And, that's, and I would say this to you about, about people with intellectual disability. I have a private, very personal connection to someone Um, who has an intellectual disability, and I love him, and I am committed to him for the rest of my life. I really care about this person and value him. And the thought that I would have used words in the past that technically describe him as an insult to somebody else kind of slaps me around a little bit. It kind of keeps me um, more mature. It helps me. And I, I, I guess... That's where I want to take us it is. Talk about our sensitivity to people who have a disability that is not of their choosing and my heart towards them and your heart towards them. I, I think about this, this person and, um, you know, he can't help it how he is. It's not a choice. Mark Twain in, 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 made this comment. He said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Disrespectful language can just make people feel excluded. It can create these barriers that we don't want to create. We just don't want to create them. So how should we think about people whom the Bible describes as spiritually blinded? Hmm. (laughs) You know, in today's culture, the... Um, accepted, the sensitive terms we would use would be physically disabled or intellectually disabled. Paul, at this point in his story, is he's spiritually disabled. He's, he's, he, it's not that he won't. It's not that he, that he doesn't. He can't see. He can't see. And just to give you some you know, spiritual background on this concept, John, you know, John Chapter 6, Jesus is talking and he says, No one can come to the Father unless, no one can come to, 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 the, to me unless the Father draws me. <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Important that I get that correct. 
it's not that you know, people aren't getting saved. This person that you think, why don't you straighten out and get your life right with God? It's not that they, you know, they're they're not going to get saved unless the Father calls them. She's not going to get saved. He's not going to get saved unless God calls them. All of us are born, every single one of us is born on a broad road. You know, it's a very busy highway. It's eight lanes wide, jammed with people, headlong running into an eternity without God. And unless God himself intersects them, interrupts them, stops them, and turns them, that spiritually disabled person will go where spiritually disabled people go. God has to do it. You know, God has to interrupt. God has to interrupt this spiritual blindness. Maybe, Maybe it's time for the body of Christ, the saved ones, to stop referring to people as pagans and heathens and, you know, that guy on his way to hell and whatever else... Because it's not that they don't see. It's not, th- not even that they won't see. It's that they cannot see. And 1 Corinthians 2 um, describes a person in this condition and, and is on this eight-lane highway and, and, and calls them the natural man, the way we were before God interrupts us. Okay, so 1 Corinthians two fourteen. But the natural man does not receive or does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. He cannot even understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Have you noticed how, you know, in our culture, the natural man thinks that you are a fool if you believe the Bible? It's because the truth of the Bible is spiritually discerned. And there it is right there. God says it's foolishness to them. They see what you believe as utter foolishness. And that's why they treat you and think about you. And that's why you're portrayed as Christians as something foolish in the media and by, um, by liberal actors and actresses and you know, at, at those award shows. And you see them making denigrating... It, to them, they're not trying to pick a fight with you. They see you as foolish because these things are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually blind. And unless God, by the Holy Spirit, intercepts them and interrupts them, they can't know it. They just can't know it's foolishness to them. And right now, Paul is in this place. In our, if we pick up in our story where, where we are with him. Now, Paul, the Christian murderer, at this point he's still called Saul in the scriptures. He is so certain. He is absolutely certain that the things he is doing is exactly what God wants him to do. Killing Christians, chasing people down, he's absolutely certain about that. And the idea of following Jesus is foolishness to Paul, to Saul. Okay, you're with me? He's spiritually blinded. And, and this is really clear in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And it describes a spiritually disabled person. Now, and you either were this person or maybe some of us are. Um, but here's what it says. The God of this age, that's Satan, right? Okay. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're blinded. It's not that they don't see or that they want. They can't. So how should we think about those that we encounter who can't see it? Let me start over. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan doesn't want people to see it. He wants everybody on that broad road. They're spiritually disabled. They just can't see 
So we've been studying this guy, Paul, and he's running around and he's murdering Christians and he's you know, dragging them off, putting them in prison, threatening people and, and, and all this. And I, I just, you know, my reaction is, come on, Paul. Are you telling me you get in there and you see these people worshiping God and it's genuine and you can sense it and you feel something different about the Spirit? You can't see it? Come on, Paul. I mean, you're telling me that you hear Peter preaching and you can't sense the light and the power and the hope and the all this. Come on. You know, what is it, Paul? I'm not seeing it. He isn't. He's blind. No, so... um. I think it would help us as we go through this today for you to give consideration to think in your heart of two or three people you know that maybe they drive you crazy, maybe they anger you, maybe they break your heart and they just don't get it when the it is the things of God. They just don't get saved. They, don't, they go off on their way. You, you know who I'm talking The Holy Spirit right now is giving you a list of names. Keep it to two or three so that we can get through the day. I mean, but I mean, I mean, I have them. I, I know them. I, I know them in my heart too. And people that you think are spiritually blind. And you know, I, I want to start by saying, God, forgive us, forgive me for the way I think about and talk about some of these people. Um, you know, maybe you've been angry at this person. We kind of have a rule at our house on Sunday mornings. I'm up early and I'm trying to, you know, get my mind in the word. And, and we do also have TVs on, which is probably not the smartest thing to do. I'm cooking breakfast and whatever. And, and um, some TV shows just get me going. And I don't want to go there on a Sunday morning especially. And I start thinking these things about these people. And there are programs. Just, you know, forgive me, Lord, for the way I think about people. They don't need our anger. They need our compassion. They don't need our frustration. They need our patience. So think about two or three people and um, as we go through this. And as we go through this, consider the possibility that today's message is basically a venue for God to put something of his heart down into your heart about these people. Or maybe you are that person. And if that's you, I pray that the Lord will open your eyes spiritually today. So when we think about um, these people being spiritually blind, blinded, um, okay, so this passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. I'm not standing up here and saying, hey, see me? This is how you ought to be. That's the last thing I would do, okay? We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and this needs to happen to every person on your list and in our hearts, let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has to do it. God has to do this. You know, if you're thinking, I, I don't know if my sister is ever going to know God. I don't know if my son is ever going to go. My spouse. Here's what I want to say to you about that. God is bigger than my blindness. And this big God is about to intercept one of the biggest outlaws in all of human history. Now, before this character Saul meets the light of the world... 
I want you to really be clear about his true condition, about what he was really like in his blindness. So I'm not going to go back there, but just to remind you, we've gone over this the last couple of weeks in Acts chapter 7 or so. Stephen is given this great, wonderful sermon to all these people and encouraging them with God and, and um, is driving the, the, the blind leaders of the day crazy. They can't stand it. They, they, they basically take him out back afterwards after plugging their ears. La, 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say. They take him out back and they kill him. They kill him by stoning him, which was a savage, messy, brutal form of execution. These people actually didn't even have the authority to do this. They just did it. They were just so full of hate. And Saul was there when that, when that went on, when they drug him out. In fact, if you read the story, Saul apparently wasn't throwing rocks. He was like, here, let me hold your coats because you can throw harder. You, know, you can make a better point of this and just mess this guy. I mean, he was there. And then if you, um, you know, if you read on, Stephen dies, and then in chapter 8, right at the very beginning, um, Scripture says, you know, with Stephen laying there, graphically, you know, it, it, he's got to be a mess. Skull split open. I don't know. Just a terrible graphic issue. In, verse eight, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of the execution. He's all over this. Awesome. Loved it. That was good. The Christians are running for the hills. They're kind of scattered. They're thinking, oh, this is not good. And um, you know, they're, they're crushed that this man of God, Stephen, who stood up for Jesus, was brutally killed because of this. And good old Saul, he gets worse. He goes from holding a coat in uh, the next couple of verses, and it says he ravaged the church. And he started going house to house and dragging men and women off to prison. Um, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Rage, breathing threats. I'm going to get you. You know, he's just going off. He's just consumed with this. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, he goes to the high priest to get some documents so that when he gets there, he has their authority to do to Christians what he wants to do. So that if he found any there who belong to the way, now, the way here is a reference to, um, it reminds me of a couple of things. First, it reminds me of John 14, where Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the way. And that's basically, it's the message of Christianity. Jesus is the way. Um, everybody say it. Jesus is the way. That's good. It's good. We should say that once in a while. Um, um, so, so they called the followers of Jesus the way. Okay, so if you could find anybody of the way. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now things are going to get interesting because <laughs> if you like puns, this is, this, is, this is like a grassy meadow to a pastor. You know, it's like he's on his way and he encounters the way on his way, and he finds out that his way was not the way. The other way was the way, and the way showed him the way. Or I don't know, whatever. But I mean, this is... Okay, yes, that pun is now... Thank you, out of the way. Okay, verse 3. <laughs> and he neared... And he, so he's heading to... He's getting very, very near now to Damascus. Now, a bit about Damascus. This is about a hundred... Jerusalem is about 150 miles south. And so here's a quick look-see. That's a journey of about 150 miles. It's 
Um, there's no trains, no trams, no buses. You know, a donkey's not much better than walking, and it's mostly an uphill because it's north, you can tell, right? It actually physically is, is uphill as well. It's not, it's not easy. It's a hard journey. I mean, and how serious do you have to be to walk 150 miles? I mean, pretty, especially in a desert-type terrain. And by the way, he wasn't on some nice paved road with 7-Elevens along the way. Here's, here are a couple of photos. I believe these are actual pictures of the actual road. It's still in existence today. Haven't been there. Um, but it's not settled. The road is not settled, many parts of it. And um, it was basically formed by people walking in carts on it. It's no reason for us to believe that it looks any different today than it did back then. And if ever there was a lost person, it's Saul. He's about as far from being a devoted follower of Christ as you can become away from that. And, um, you know, if you were to ask God, you know, what do you think about this guy? He's trying to get away from you, God. I, I think God wouldn't say so. I'd say, no, no, he's not. You know, he's not trying to get away from me. He's just a blind guy. God loves him. Even at this point, killing Christians, God loves Saul. He sees him in his blindness and he goes after him and he picks him out. And I love this truth. No one in any circumstance is too lost for God to find them. So consider your list again. He's never going to get saved. She's never going to come back. You know, this, this, this little story is detailed in Scripture to show us that nobody anywhere under any circumstances is too lost for God to find them. So back to God's word. He can, continues, verse 4, or verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. There's that suddenly word. Boy, when you see suddenly in the Scripture, there's, you know, there's always cool stuff that's going to happen. And you're, you know, he's walking along, thinks he's got it all going on. He's probably listening to his iPod. You know, you know what song he's listening to? He's listening to the song, I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. <laughs> and the light comes. <laughs> I warned you before about my immaturity. I, okay, the light comes, and all of a sudden, suddenly, something's going on. I never saw this coming. I never dreamed what was going to happen. I never had any idea about this. Suddenly, this light flashes around him. This, this child who was wandering, this, you know, maybe for you it's your spouse who's, you know, wrapped up in some sort of stupid addiction, heartbreaking. Or your sister or your parent or your child who's absolutely recalcitrant, adverse to anything about God, won't let you talk to him. Nobody's too lost for God. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, now catch the tenderness here. You may have read this before thinking there was anger in this, but, you know, think of, consider what's not in the scripture here. What did Jesus not say? Get down on your knees, you smudge. I'm going to wipe you off my boot now. (laughs) I mean, that's not what he says. Worm! (laughs) You crawl, you worm. None of that's there. Do you think 
that's how Jesus feels about people who are blind? I mean, that's wrong thinking. It's, it's not as hard at all. We get, we get angry with non-believers and the way that they kind of mess up our world, but that's not God's heart. It's not. He so loved the world, those lost people, that he gave his only son. And here is enemy number one, <laughs> right? And I love this tenderness of Jesus. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Catch that. Who's he persecuting here? No, he's persecuting Jesus. Jesus, I mean, literally, he's chasing down the Christians. That's, that's literally true. But how does Jesus see? You're persecuting me. So catch this. When somebody's persecuting you in the place, in, in the workplace or somewhere else because of your stance with Christ, you know how God sees that? He takes it really personal. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, he didn't say, why did you persecute Stephen and martyr him? Why are you so, being so hard on my children? No, Jesus, is, this is really, really personal. You know, when somebody is opposing one of Christ's kids, <laughs> he sees it as if we're doing it to him. By the way, the reverse is also true. When you care for someone in need, Jesus acts and believes it like you're doing it for him personally. You know? He says, you know, I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You prayed for me. I was in prison. You came to me. That's the opposite. He feels the same. There's no hypocrisy in Christ. So every harsh act, every persecution towards Christians, Jesus takes that really, really personally. And every act of kindness and graciousness and forbearance, you know, that you dole out to people, he takes that personally too. It's a good thing. It's the same way, by the way, we feel pretty much as parents, you know. If you love my children, I feel like you love me, you know, and, and vice versa. So Jesus moves towards Saul, who's this lost guy, but not too lost for God to find him. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, it was an uncommon thing to end a sentence with the name Lord. He knows something's going on here. The brightness of the light's pretty clear. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, imagine the shock value of that moment. This is the guy who was absolutely convinced he was on God's team. He was on the winning team. In fact, he's batting cleanup. He's the superstar of the team. And he finds out, I'm on the wrong team. I'm none of that. He's blind. He's lost. And in those moments, those shocking moments, he's realizing that Jesus, who he's persecuting, is actually the Messiah. He is a student of the scripture. He knew there was one coming. They were waiting for him. Their hope was in it. He missed it. And he didn't miss it by a small margin. It's not like he missed the field goal this much or the safety or whatever happened yesterday. I don't know about that. It's like he missed it. It's like they didn't even go to the right city. He, he missed it completely. He not only had missed that it, it was God's will and his Messiah. The Messiah was there. He could have hung out with him. He could have had coffee with him. Not only that, 
He was working against him. Right up until the moment that grace interrupts him. And verse six, here it is. But rise. I love that part, but rise. You know, you've been this person. You've, you've done these things. You've, you've been doing these things. And Jesus says to him, but rise. <laughs> and maybe that's your story. Maybe you'd say, I was the guy doing these things, or I was this girl, and I was going to these places, and I was whatever. But rise. And as you think about your little, you know, your little list of two or three names, or maybe it's a big list, nobody's too far for God to, to reach them and to find them and, and to stop them and turn them around because we serve this guy. And, 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 and in their blindness, halted by the light, Paul, driven to his knees, but does God leave him there? No. That's where he puts his hand down on us on you and on me, and he says, but rise. I I know all this, but rise, rise. Nobody in any circumstance is too lost for God to find them. No one, and here's the next point, no one anywhere in any circumstance is too hard for God to break them. This continues in verse six. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. (laughs) So they're in for a wild ride too. They're hearing something going on. They don't see it. And we find out later in Acts 22 and 26, the light was brighter than the sun. A pretty big deal going on there. Verse eight. So Saul, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, physically opened, he can't see now. He saw nothing. This guy's going to be humbled. He's just being humbled. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, this guy had been upright. Now he's kneeling. You know, he'd been leading the charge. Now he's being led. He had been trying to break the sincerity of people. Now this man is sincerely broken. He's being humbled. So they led him by the hand of Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This guy is going through God's tiniest knot hole. Let me pull you through there. I love you, Paul. It's going to hurt for a minute. <laughs> and he's going through this little spiritual knot hole and being shaped by the Lord into something he would never be without the knot hole of love that's going on there. Ever been through a knot hole? I've been through a knot hole. I feel like we get to decide with our own heart how big the knot hole is going to be. I'm learning. I haven't learned it completely yet, but I'm learning to try to let the knot hole be as big as it can be. And it's kind of a direct measurement to grace that's right here. And if I don't have a lot of grace here, the knot hole gets smaller. But God loves me enough. Terry, come on. But rise, but I'm going to pull you through this knot hole to get you there. Because I need your heart to be different on the other side of this. And Paul can't see, won't eat, won't drink for three days. (laughs) Do you think he's going through it? He's going through it. And we have this list of people in our hearts that need to be saved. But here's the thing. You have your list of people and you're focused on them and you're thinking about them. But I want to point out to you, all around us, all around you right now, are a lot of other people. God is doing that with them right now, today. 
Go to that person and find them. Maybe it's somebody at work or somebody you know, that you have coffee with or you go to a place, you, you spend time weekly. With. I, don't, I don't know. Go to that person. That's the person. Somewhere there is someone that you likely have access to and a voice into their life and they are ripe for the gospel. They are ripe to hear somebody say to them, but rise. There's something better. There's, there's something of love and there's something better, but rise. Rise. They're ready and they're ripe for the gospel, the love of Jesus. And it's unbelievable how fast the Lord put this guy down on the mat. I had one of those experiences in my life, you know, where I got put down on the mat literally really, really fast. I was in seventh grade and um, still was, hadn't even started the change of life, so I was still a little boy and um, was attending Sacagawea Junior High in Spokane and um, first time in a group PE class like this where they they were going to teach this subject that I knew nothing about. And um, it was going to be on the, the, the uh, wrestling. And I was baseball. There were no other sports. Maybe eventually basketball and a little bit of football. But I mean, I didn't even know the sport of wrestling. Had no interest in the sport of wrestling, but there are some who do. But whatever. So anyway, so um, this, this, the PE teacher is going to do this. And he pairs people off. He starts putting people in pairs. And it gets down to, he's, he's paired off everyone in the class I'm the only one that's, there's only two left, me and this guy. <laughs> Leave it up there. That's all I can remember. And this, this guy, I'm swearing, I, I swear he's, I'm probably swearing, I, I swear, drool's coming out of his mouth and he's got this evil smile like I'm going to, pick the meat off your bones kind of a thing. And, um, you know, he, he, he picks me up, spins me around, slams me on the mat. One, two, three, bang, it's over. And you say, well, why didn't you fight here? I was fighting. <laughs> Come on. God has to do that. You can take it down now. God has to intercept people. He has to do that. And sometimes we can look on the outside and see something, a crisis going on in someone's life, and our compassion wants to fix it. And you should, if you can. But on the way to fixing it, if the Lord has called you, you should check in with heaven to make sure that you're not messing with something. Because sometimes the Lord has to put somebody down on their knees so that when they stand up, they're different-hearted. And um, for those people on your list, until that happens, until God intercepts them, there's not really an awful lot that's going to change. But you know, So just love them. Just be kind to them. Be compassionate. You know, they're, remember, they're blind. They're blind. Have compassion and patience and pray for God to pin them because nobody under... Any circumstance is too lost for God to find them. No one is too hard for God to break them. And number three, no one anywhere in any circumstance is too evil for God to save them. Verse 10. You get a sense of who Saul was. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Stop right there. Great spot every 
self-respecting preacher is going to stop right there and say, that's a great attitude. Here I am, Lord. Not, can, can we do this later, God? Or could you get somebody else, Lord? He says, Here I am. Here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, little mini rabbit trail. This is an actual place. It was part of the you know, Roman ha- highway system of there, and it's still there to this day. And in fact, if you, were to, if you were to go visit Damascus, which I wouldn't recommend today, Syria is a bad, scary place. But there's even a church there um, where they think that Ananias' house was, where, all the, where, where this all took place. So he says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says, rise, go to the street, uh, street called Straight. He says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I'm the right guy. You pick the right one. I'm on your team, Lord. I'll do it. Going right now. At the house of Judas. Yep. Know him. Good. Going one way. Look for a man of Tarsus. Okay, cool. Tarsus, a traveler. I get to meet him. I'll look forward to that. Name Saul. <gasps> Wait a minute. But, 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 um, <laughs> for a minute there, God, I thought you said named Saul. <laughs> and, you know, you probably, yeah, I know you would know this, but he's been chasing people down and killing them. God continues, for behold, he is praying and he's seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias had been on board completely right up until he had some concerns or disagreements with God's plan. And now comes some pushback. I wish I wasn't like this. I do this sometimes. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. By the way, one of which is me. And now this gets awesome. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's a what? Christian killer? Murderer? Coat holder? Chosen instrument. Now, as a side note about church, I don't detect any issues with this topic, but just if you're a visitor today, I want you to know about God's word and, and, and passion for church. This, isn't, this is not a religious club. You know, church isn't a religious club. It's, it's supposed to be a place for sinful people like us to come and encounter the grace of a loving God and to be changed by his spirit. That's what church is supposed to be. It's not an exclusive place for, with people who have already achieved it. I don't, I, don't, I don't sense that here, but I just want to make that declaration. We're not a group of people who have already made it, right? At least you're not being led by one. So to think that God would take this, a guy like Saul who, who did what he did and you know, who'd been where he's been and you know, I, I'm just so glad that God didn't lock down on this guy. I'm glad that he doesn't do it today because I'm a sinner. You know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And by the way, if you read later into some of the Apostle Paul's other writings, you'll find in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, we were those people. You know, he says, he says that, and, and, and such were some of you. You, you, you. Apart from Christ, we ought never think ourselves really of anything. It's certainly not better than other people. We were blind and he gives us sight. I was blind and he gave me sight. 
Now, maybe you were or you are struggling with stuff in life. When Ananias gets there, something really cool happens. He lays his hands on him and prays for him, and then he calls him brother. What a tender, loving, faith-filled moment, visionary moment. Saul Paul had never had the opportunity now to demonstrate that he was changed. He never, at this point, had ever had the opportunity to prove himself capable of properly loving Christians. He'd only proved himself capable of harming them and hurting them. And this man, Ananias, with the faith of a word that he got from the Lord, calls him brother. He didn't even call him Saul. Call him brother. Maybe you've had struggles in your life, big ones, where you're fighting some drugs or you're, you know, you, you... selling some out in some way. Maybe you just hold coats or maybe you were just the run-of-the-mill stubborn, rebellious teenager like me. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you were, what you did, where you've gone. The Bible says the blood of Christ covers all sin, all of it, every bit of it. And God in his mercy reached, reaches down. He did then and he does it today. He reaches down and touches people who are spiritually blind. I encourage you, church, to think of those who frustrate you and make you angry no longer as your enemies. Stop thinking of, they're either for me or against me. If they're against God, then they're the enemy and we're against them. No, 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 no. Instead, think of them as spiritually blind. Have the same compassion on them that you would have any other person with a disability and realize they need an intervention that can only come from God and pray that way with love on your hearts. And if that's you, I want to encourage you today to receive the just rise of Christ. Just to receive the love and the grace. Don't care what you've done or where you've been or what you do. The love of Christ is available to anyone. Scripture says who all who call in the name of Christ will be saved. Amen, church? And let's pray. God, I thank you today for this great work that you've done and, and that you continue to do. I thank you, Lord, that you are still today saving people because if that had stopped, we'd be gone. It's a free gift, not because of righteousness, but Lord, you give that away freely to people who need it, sinners. Keep your eyes closed for a moment, church. Um, I just want to give opportunity. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord before, if you say, okay, I, I never got it before, but now I see it, the Lord is, is opening my eyes and I want to open my heart to him. Just pray and, 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 and say to God right now, our eyes are closed. Nobody's going to see this. I'm not looking. Just, I would just even raise your hand to God and say, Lord, I, I, I get it. Thank you. Now, Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of these people that have been spiritually blind and lead them, Lord, in your ways. Christians, pray for people that way. Pray for life and light. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward.